Well, welcome to the second session on a look at uh, the biblical teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Last time, we focused on the Old Testament uh, position on this subject. Today, we're going to focus on what Jesus taught, because always at the end of the day, what matters is what did Jesus say? It's like the story you may have heard of the little boy who noticed in the Old Testament that many men like Abraham or David had more than one wife. And so he said, well, Daddy, why don't people have more than one wife today? And the daddy said, because of Jesus. He said in Matthew six twenty four, no man can serve two masters. Well, <laughs> I think probably he misused uh, that text. I think, though, that... Most of Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage has been terribly misused. I was raised in Churches of Christ, and I was taught what I'm going to call the traditional uh, position on this subject. And it wasn't just taught in Churches of Christ. Uh, This has been a position taught in many different fellowships. It went something like this. Here's what Jesus taught. That you could divorce for only one reason and have it be a scriptural divorce, which, of course, is the ultimate oxymoron. But that reason was adultery, a mate having sex with someone not their mate. The guilty person then, the one that committed the adultery, could never remarry after divorce. The innocent party could remarry. Now, if you divorced for any other reason, then you must remain celibate for the rest of your life, regardless of who initiated the divorce. Uh, If you were divorced by someone who didn't want to be married to you anymore, but it wasn't for adultery, you had to remain celibate. To marry again would be great sin because you were still married in the eyes of God. Consequently, you would be living in adultery. This position had a lot of phrases that you had to learn how to use, like guilty party, innocent party, still married in the eyes of God, living in adultery, scriptural divorce. None of those phrases are in the Bible. But this was the position I inherited. And when I first began to preach, it was the position I was trying to hold. And one of my first crises in ministry was the seeming incongruity between my received theology of divorce and remarriage and my growing understanding of grace. Because what seemed so simple in the tracks that explained it got very, very messy when you started trying to deal with real people. Also... I quickly grew tired of being expected to assume the role of judge. It was not uncommon in those early years, and it's not uncommon today, to receive phone calls from people from across the country wanting to know my position on divorce and remarriage, and it dawned on me what they're really doing is simply calling preacher after preacher until they find the preacher that tells them it's okay to do what they've already decided they're going to do before they made the phone call. And I didn't like being put in that position. I found out that these cases are never as simple in real life as they were made to be in the classroom. For example, here are some of the questions I wrestled with. 
How sure does a partner have to be of another spouse's infidelity? Are rumors a good enough reason to divorce for adultery? Do you have to have phone records, hotel bills, or do you have to actually catch your mate in the act before you have scriptural grounds? Does fornication demand the sexual act be fully consummated? What about emotional affairs? Does that constitute adultery? What about sexual intimacy that stops just short of intercourse? Is that grounds? If the guilty party is penitent, is the ground still valid? If a mate has an affair, repents of it, can the other mate say, I don't care, you committed adultery, I am now free to divorce you and remarry? Because I knew many people who did that. But I wondered if that was the spirit of what Jesus was saying. If people divorce over incompatibility, they remain celibate for years, and then one of them remarries, can the second person claim fornication as their grounds to remarry? Because I saw that done. What if the innocent party failed to meet their marital obligations. I knew, for example, of one marriage where the woman was an absolute true, the most difficult woman I've ever known. She was addicted to prescription drugs. She was uh, foul-tempered. I was not surprised to hear her husband finally had an affair. She quickly divorced him, and the elders pronounced her the innocent Party. Of course, it didn't hurt that her father was one of the elders. But everybody that knew that couple knew she had failed by every measure to be the wife God wanted her to be. I won't say never, but I will say in over 30 years of ministry, it is rarely ever the case when a marriage breaks up, the fault is totally with just one person. Is there such a thing as a totally innocent party in a bad marriage? I remember sitting in a class at ACU and the traditional position was being taught. And as a student, I asked my professor, so two people divorce and there's no charge of adultery. What are they to do if they are to ever desire marriage again? And the response come, I'll never forget it, well... They're just going to have to wait it out. In other words, at some point one can't wait anymore and they're going to get married. They will be the guilty party and then the other one can go ahead and marry. I remember thinking then that was a mockery of righteousness. Another thing bothered me is that I realized that the verdict of innocent or guilty almost always depended on what side of the story you heard. I knew at the church where I preached in Abilene of people that were declared the innocent party when they told our elders their version, while the other mate went to another church, met with other elders, told their side of the story, and they were declared the innocent party. And where was the New Testament example or inference of early church leaders dealing with all these kinds of situations? Why were people constantly asking me to be the moral judge and final word on these matters when I didn't find a men in the New Testament doing this? It also bothered me 
that I was allowed to show more mercy to a harlot or to a murderer than to a divorced person or to a person in an abusive marriage. Over time, I became convinced that the thrust of Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage had been missed and misused, that his insights had been handled with a lawyer's mentality when it was, in fact, a case law attitude that was the very spirit that Jesus was opposing in the first place, that we have used the spirit to interpret Jesus' teachings that he was trying to oppose when he gave the teachings. And so what I'm going to try to do is discover the heart of Jesus' teaching, which I think, of course, is going to emphasize the heart. We're going to start with Mark chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, because I think it's very important to know the context of the teachings we have from Jesus about divorce and remarriage. It says that Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Please notice Jesus was being intentionally tested. That's an important word. It's used three other times in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, chapter 8, chapter 12. Every single time it is used, it is men who are setting a trap. They are not looking for truth. They are trying to trap Jesus. Please notice also, where did they set this particular test? You say, well, that doesn't matter. It matters a lot. It says they were across the Jordan. It was a region called Perea. It was governed by a man named Herod Antipas, who you might remember had just beheaded John the Baptist for speaking out against the lawfulness of his marriage. Do you think it was a coincidence that they waited until Jesus was in Herod's territory? The man who had just murdered John for speaking out against his marriage. To ask that question. What I'm trying to get you to see is that these are not wounded Men needing counsel. These are wicked men needing rebuke. You've got to remember who they are and where they are. Because we are going to notice a softening of Jesus' position when he's speaking only to his disciples. So now, let me try to summarize what I think is Jesus' position on divorce and remarriage. Let's just continue to read in Mark now, verses 3 through 9. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man... To write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Okay, here's the very first thing to say. Jesus harmonizes with Moses. Let's briefly review our last lesson. God permitted divorce in the Old Testament for reasons besides sexual infidelity. And remarriage by the divorced was never considered adultery. 
Now, God's moral nature does not change with dispensations. Jesus is not going to suddenly call something sin that God did not call sin under Moses. Don't tell me you get more grace under Moses that you're going to get under Jesus. And so Jesus is not correcting Moses. He's redirecting the focus to God's original ideal. Every divorce, even if it's permitted, is still an evidence of rebellion against God's purpose for marriage. And so instead of trying to dignify divorce, what Jesus does is choose to elevate the sacredness of marriage. Because to focus on legality is to miss God's intent. And so he basically says to these testers, you're asking me about Deuteronomy 24. That tells me a lot about your heart. Why didn't you ask me about Genesis 2, 24? Why didn't you ask me what God wants a marriage to be? Instead of asking me how you can get out of your marriage with the blessing of God. If their hearts had been right, Moses' concessive legislation would never have been necessary in the first place. This is the problem with the Pharisees. They're always focusing on the letter of the law and missing the intent. You remember that Jesus' disciples are hungry one Sabbath, and as they walk by a field, they pluck a few grains from the corner and pop it in their mouths. And immediately the, the Pharisees go on alert and accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. And again, Jesus says, why do you always miss the intent of the law and worship the code? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think on this question of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we've created a theology that's become more important than people. Why do we do this? Why, why do we treat the Word of God like a bunch of lawyers going over a contract? It's because our hearts are hard. And we're looking for ways to be both legal and immoral. And Jesus isn't going to let us do it. He harmonizes with Moses. Second, Jesus criticizes legal adultery. Why did Jesus mention remarriage? He wasn't asked about remarriage. He was simply asked, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? He was asked about divorce, and he talked about remarriage. Why? Because that was the intent of the divorce. To marry somebody else was the reason they were getting their divorces. Remember, this is the kind of divorce God hates. We saw in our last lesson, God allowed divorce in Deuteronomy. He endorsed divorce in Ezra, but he hates divorce in Malachi when they're getting rid of the wife of their youth, their marriage partner, breaking the covenant so they can go marry somebody else, cloaking an adulterous heart with pious legality. And God says, do you think you fooled me? You had your eye on somebody else. So you went through the motions, you wrote the decree, you got the witnesses, you took it to a judge, you got your divorce, and then you went and you married the person you always wanted anyway. And do you really think you fooled me? It's adultery. And I think confusion on this matter has caused many to have a bigger problem with remarriage 
than they do with divorce. Because Jesus' problem is not in making covenants. His problem is breaking covenants. So let's walk quickly through the four times where Jesus talks about marriage and divorce. And notice what he says. We continue in Mark 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, by the way, Mark adds that because Mark was written to Romans. And in Roman culture, a woman could divorce her husband. That wasn't so permissible in Jewish culture. But please notice, you divorce your wife and you marry another woman, you commit adultery against her. Against who? The first wife. It's not adultery with the second wife. It's adultery against the first wife. Now, a strict interpretation of the law, that's impossible. No, you're committing adultery with the second wife. Not what Jesus says, because Jesus says, I know the intent of the divorce. You wanted somebody else, but you wanted to be right in God's eyes. So you went through the sham, got your paperwork done, and got who you really wanted. God wasn't fooled. It's adultery. Luke 16, 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Same thing he said in Mark. But now the second half is more confusing. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what does he mean there? The Greek word loosed is a participle. And you have to decide if it's a middle or a passive participle. And I hate to sound technical. I'm not a Greek scholar. I can read the works of people who are. This is a middle participle. And here's what it says. Anyone who marries a woman who has loosed herself. It's a middle participle. She's loosed herself, commits adultery. Now, there's no definite article there. He's not talking about the woman in the first half of the verse. He's talking about two situations. All he's really doing is saying the same thing. He's saying, if you get out of a marriage so that you can go be with somebody else, that's adultery. Or if she got out of a marriage so that she could be with you, that's adultery. He's simply saying the same thing. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you were the one who got out of the marriage or she's the one that got out of the marriage. People that get out of marriages so they can go with the person they've already got their eye on are committing adultery as far as God's concerned. And please notice, neither Mark or Luke say anything about an exception. Matthew 19. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, same idea. Anybody wicked enough to throw away his wife for the purpose of marrying somebody else is guilty of adultery against the person you discarded. I think Jesus is being very courageous here. He will not whitewash what John called sin. Now, what is his purpose here? Is Jesus trying to condemn remarriage? Or is he condemning adulterous divorce? Is Jesus really teaching like I've heard it taught before that it's really not a sin as long as you get a divorce, as long as you don't marry again? Is that his problem with remarriage? Or is his problem with people 
who are getting out of marriages and doing so in a way that baptizes an adulterous heart, sinning against the wife of the covenant. Look at Matthew 5. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Please notice that phrase. Causes her to become an adulteress. Now, here's what the traditional position had to do. Because the traditional position's real problem is if you get married again. It had to assume that when you divorced her, she was going to get married again. And that for her, she became an adulteress. He doesn't say that. Here it's a passive tense. You cause her to be adulterated. Something is done against her, not by her. Adultery is committed with reference to her whether she ever marries or has sex again. It's the act of divorce that adulterated her. Not a possible remarriage. She's not forced to remarry. She's not forced to ever have sex again. She was forced to break her covenant. You caused her to be adulterated. See, I think Matthew 5 makes it clear. The adultery to which Jesus is referring is not wrongful sex. It's broken promises. Just like, remember, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've always heard, well, if you murder, you sin. But I'm telling you, God knows your heart. If in your heart there is hate reserved against your brother. But you never pull the trigger. You didn't fool God. And you've always heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if your heart is full of lust... And the only thing that has kept you from adultery is you never had the chance or you were afraid you'd get caught. You didn't fool God. And now you come along and you say, I really want that woman, but I'll divorce my wife first so I can go have her. You didn't fool God. God sees the heart. Now, Jesus is not giving a comprehensive theology of marriage and divorce. He's not writing an encyclopedia on every possible divorce situation. He's talking specifically to wicked men who are in the practice, just like Malachi 2, of getting rid of their wives because they have their eye on somebody else. And he says, it's adultery. Adultery is more than a sex act. It's treating people like things to be used and discarding them when you're through with them. Adultery is the negating of vows. It's the breaking of covenants. You've you got to understand in the Bible, your heart can be adulterous in many ways. Look at these uh, scriptures, for example. Uh, from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you build your mounds at the head of every street, make your lofty shrines in every public square, you're like... You're unlike a prostitute because you scorn payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. He's talking about his relationship to Israel. We had a covenant and you've broken it. You're adulterers. Jeremiah 3 verse 9, because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she deviled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. 
Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus' brother James, chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The church is full of adulterous people who've never had sex with the wrong person. Because it's not so much a specific act, it's a breach of covenant that certain acts, particularly sexual immorality, has generated. Remember again, they're wanting to sanctify, breaking the spirit and the intent of God's teaching. And Jesus has a problem with that. Jesus has a problem with people that want to baptize breaking covenants. And he takes his stand, vows need to be kept. It's not a coincidence that right after this teaching in Matthew 5, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Stop breaking your vows. When you give somebody your word, it's supposed to mean something. Keep your promise. So Jesus criticizes legal adultery. Third, He emphasizes staying married. Now, I really want you to think with me for a few moments because this might be the part of my teaching that is the most uh, eye-opening. It might be something you've never thought about before. I don't believe Jesus legitimized any reason for divorce or made any cause for divorce more scriptural than another cause. And you're ahead of me because you're good Bible students. You're saying, well, what about the exception clause? Please notice that little phrase, except for fornication, only appeared in Matthew. It did not appear in Mark or in Luke. If you were in the Greek or Roman churches for a long time, you didn't know about an exception clause. Only Matthew, the gospel to the Jews, has it. Why is that? Because I believe that phrase, except for fornication was a phrase that said something that only the Jewish believers would have understood and needed. That word there, porneia, it's where we get our word pornography, I don't believe it's talking about adultery. I believe it's referring to incestuous marriages that were forbidden by the law in Leviticus 18. What Jesus was saying, consistent with what he said in Mark and in Luke, was this. You shouldn't divorce. And then to the Jews, he adds, unless you are in a marriage that your own law has already forbidden. Now, this is not a new view. It's actually been around a long time, but I realize it might be new to you. So I'm going to take a little time and explain why I think that's what Jesus was saying. The first time I really began to ponder this is when I was preaching through Acts years ago when I came to the Jerusalem conference. And they're wrestling with the Gentile question. Now, the question was not, can a Gentile be saved? The question was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew? The question was, how can we have Jew and Gentile fellowship? And if you remember, at the end of the conference, they come up with this judgment in Acts 15. James says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals... And from blood. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. 
You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. So, why did he mention sexual immorality? And the word he used is porneia. He's talking about fellowship. He's saying to the Gentiles, now do you want to have good relations with your Jewish Christian brothers? Don't serve them blood pudding. Don't offer meat you bought at the idol shop and don't fornicate on the table. Does that make sense? Because the Gentiles already knew that fornication was wrong. No, if you'll go back to Leviticus in chapter 17 and 18, in perfect order, all four of those things show up. 17, 8 and 9, don't eat food offered to idols. 17, 10 through 12, don't eat food with blood in it or meat with blood in it. 17, 13 through 14, don't eat things strangled. And then in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 18, is a long list of marriages of close family members forbidden in the Old Testament. Don't marry your father's wife. Don't marry your sister. Don't marry your brother's wife. And you have this long list. The Gentiles did all those things. And so what James is saying is, do you want to have good table fellowship? Don't eat food with blood in it. Don't eat food you got at the idol shop. And for the sake of fellowship, you Gentiles stop the practice of marrying close relatives. Because these things are offensive to the Jews. They knew fornication was wrong. They didn't know how Jews felt about marrying close relatives. And the word he used, porneia. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul says to the church there, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. The word there, porneia. Now look at Matthew 14. I think this is a very critical uh, text for my conclusion. Verse 3 and 4. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Please notice, John was not saying it's unlawful for you to remarry. You were allowed to remarry in the Old Testament if you'd been divorced. But you were never allowed to marry your brother's wife. That was unlawful. John is referring to Leviticus 18. Would you please now remember our context? They wait until Jesus is in John's backyard. And what does Jesus do? Talk about courage. Jesus says, don't get divorces unless your marriage is unlawful. He is completely affirming what John had told Herod. He called sin, sin. And then consider the disciples' reaction. Matthew 19.10 After he said this, they said to him, If this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, Jesus, if marriage is that secure, maybe a guy shouldn't get in it. Please, He said something that shocked them. It was not shocking to hear you could divorce for adultery. Shammai the rabbi said that. Remember, we talked about that last time. No, Jesus said something that went past Shammai. What Jesus said was, don't be getting divorces. There's no good reason 
God's always against divorce. Don't do it. They said, whoa. Maybe we, should, maybe we just shouldn't get married then. And then finally, look at 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll talk more about this next week. But Paul says to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Now what he means is, I'm going to repeat what Jesus taught. So Paul says, I'm going to sum up. Here is Jesus' position on divorce and remarriage. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. Paul mentions no exceptions when he states the Lord's positions. Now, I told you last time, I am more conservative on divorce than most people. I think Jesus was. I don't believe Jesus taught any reason to get a divorce is more scriptural than any other reason. In fact, I think the whole idea of scriptural divorce might be the ultimate oxymoron. Jesus would want every marriage, even if fornication is involved, to be healed and come back to the ideal of Genesis 2.24. Okay, fourth though. Jesus recognizes that divorce happens. There's a great difference in saying something's wrong and saying it's impossible. And so the traditional position said, okay, so if you divorce for a reason besides adultery, and I've already told you I don't agree with that interpretation, you can't remarry because you are, quote, still married in the eyes of God. You would be living in adultery. Just because Jesus says you shouldn't do something doesn't mean you can't do it. Just because something is unacceptable doesn't mean it's unachievable. This idea that you can't divorce and that your second marriage isn't a real marriage is biblically untenable. This notion that a divorced person who remarried was living in sin was not cemented as church doctrine until about the 15th century and the Council of Trent when the Catholic Church decided they would reserve for themselves the right to decide who's married and who isn't. And so the Council of Trent said the Catholic Church can marry and only the Catholic Church can annul a marriage. And if you annul your marriage or divorce and the Catholic Church hasn't said you could, you're still married. That is where this unbiblical notion became popularly accepted that a divorced person could remarry and still be married in the eyes of God to their first person because they're not really divorced. That's nonsense. Now, you shouldn't tear asunder what God puts together, but that doesn't mean you can't. Just like you could in the days of Moses. Men aren't any less hard-hearted today than they were then. People may end marriages. And Jesus acknowledged that. Divorce is divorce and marriage is marriage. He met the woman at the well. He said to her, you've been married five times. He did not say you were married once. And you thought you were married four more times. But you really weren't because in the eyes of God, you were still always married to the first husband. No, divorce is divorce. Marriage is marriage. Just because it shouldn't happen doesn't mean it can't and doesn't happen. But would Jesus call every divorce adultery? Or just those sought with a Pharisaic spirit? Do you understand my question? If you divorce 
your mate so that you can go get with somebody else. Jesus calls that adultery. But is that why every divorce happens? All divorces evidence sin, but are all divorces sinful? Remember, Jesus was dealing with a specific question from a specific audience. If a woman divorces a man because he's a drug dealer, because he's an addict, because he's abusive to her or the children, is her action more sinful than a woman that divorces a husband because of constant immorality? The first time I taught this material, a woman came up to me from our church. She's an older woman now, and she pulled back the bangs of her forehead. She always wears bangs, even though she's an older woman. It's not really the style, but it's to cover up a scar, the length of her forehead that she got from her husband. If she showed you her back, she could show you three or four more that are longer. And she stayed year after year after year in a marriage that was literally physically dangerous. Because the church told her, you have no grounds for divorce. You can't prove adultery. How do we take Jesus, who always, always took the side of the oppressed, and use him to oppress? I don't think God hates all divorces the same. Because all divorces aren't made for the same reasons. I think Jesus always appealed to the ideal. He always goes back to Genesis 2.24. But he recognized the real. And in the real world, divorces happen. And so, the last thing I'm going to say. Is I understand Jesus. He authorizes marriage for all. You see, the traditional view made remarriage the real problem. The traditional view made remarriage much worse than divorce, which I think is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. I believe it was great error to teach that the guilty party and sometimes even the innocent party had to remain celibate. Under the traditional teaching, if your mate divorced you, you didn't want it. They initiated it. They filed and they divorced you. And you couldn't prove adultery. You had to remain celibate for the rest of your life. Jesus, I think, emphatically rejected that conclusion. Look at what he concluded by saying to the disciples. He replied, Matthew 19. Well, they said, maybe it's just better not to get married then. If, if, if you're so strong that people need to stay married, if you're so strong, maybe it's just best not to get married. He said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. 
The one who can accept implies most can't. And Jesus said so. This is a hard teaching. Most can't live outside the protection of marriage. Marriage is God's gracious provision for those who would burn without it. And to demand celibacy of someone for the rest of their life who've been through the pain of a broken marriage is, I think, to do damage to the doctrine of atonement. It is to confuse repentance with penance. In other words, it is to say to somebody, you have sinned a sin. And to be right with God, you have to pay for that sin with celibacy for the rest of your life. In other words, Jesus didn't pay at all. Jesus paid for some of your sin. You have to pay for the rest. That's not repentance. That's penance. And penance does, I think, uh, is an affront to the cross. While some kind of marriages in the Bible are forbidden, no one in the Old Testament or New Testament is ever declared ineligible for marriage. I believe even the guilty party may marry. Because the adultery was in breaking that first marriage covenant, not in making another one. And the traditional position says, yeah, but they're still married in the eyes of God, which I don't think is a biblical position. But let me ask you, if they were, if the guilty party that committed adultery is still married in the eyes of God, why isn't the innocent person still married in the eyes of God? How can the innocent person be free to go remarry if the guilty person is still married to that person? You can't have that both ways. Where in the Bible can you find an adulterous marriage? Anywhere in the Bible where a marriage was called adultery. Shall we make Jesus say it is good for a man to be alone when God said it isn't? Remember, Jesus wasn't asked about the subject of marriage after divorce. Because everybody knew that's allowed. The law allowed that. They were asking him, can you get a divorce for any reason? And he said, there's no good reason to destroy God's ideal. But it happens. People do divorce. And they can remarry. Because it wasn't a sin in the Old Testament. It can't suddenly become one in the New. In fact, Paul will later say in 1 Timothy 4.3 that these people that run around that forbid marriage, he called it a doctrine of demons. It is, it is a demonic doctrine to preach to people they can't marry when marriage was God's gift to protect their purity. Now, I think Paul is going to help us pull all this together next time. But I'm going to close with a couple of conclusions that I hope make sense. Here's number one. I believe then divorce is always wrong, but sometimes it's best. I don't think that's a contradiction. 
I mean by that divorce is always evidence of man's fallenness. Always. Every divorce is evidence we aren't meeting God's ideal. But in some marriages, divorce may be the least of evils. Look at Exodus 21 with me. Interesting passage from the Old Testament, verse 10 and 11. It's talking about a man who has taken on a second wife. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. In other words, under the law, a woman did not have to stay in a marriage where she was treated as a thing. You aren't going to provide for her. You're not going to provide her physical needs. You're not going to provide her sexual needs. You're going to treat her like an object. Under the law, she was free to leave that kind of marriage. When marriage hurts the person that God loves, the person must be the first priority. Marriage should never provide shelter for abusers. And for such wickedness. Remember, just like the Sabbath, marriage was made for man, not man for marriage. I still think every divorce is evidence that man is in rebellion against God. Every divorce is a reminder we're not living by the ideal. But sometimes it is the least evil and the most merciful path. It's always wrong, but sometimes it's best. Second, Marriage is always right, but sometimes it's not best. There are no moral reasons to discourage anybody from getting marriage, but there may be pastoral reasons. What I mean by that is even though under the scriptural understanding of this teaching, you may have permission to marry, that doesn't mean it's wise. It may be biblical for you to remarry. That doesn't mean I'm going to preach your wedding. It is very possible that there were character issues that showed up in your first marriage that destroyed your marriage you still haven't dealt with, that you still haven't repented of and addressed. There is a reason why the divorce rate of second marriages is so much higher than the already too high divorce rate of first marriages. Single people, especially single again people, I think should be strongly urged to consider Paul's counsel to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God. But if they marry, Paul makes it very clear, they have not sinned. I have gotten out of the verdict rendering business. I am tired of people wanting to put me in a seat only God can sit in. And so people say, well, what's your stance? It's very simple. I'm against divorce. I'm for marriage. Even though I'm against divorce, I won't condemn you if your divorce was the most merciful path. And even though I'm for marriage, I may not preach yours. If I think you have displayed a kind of spiritual immaturity that shows you're not ready for the responsibility. I hold up the ideal 
and I minister grace to those who fail to reach it. I think that's what Jesus taught. I think that's what Jesus did. I think, again, our basic problem for years, we've read Jesus through a legal lens. And it was that very spirit he was opposing when he taught on the subject. I think he honors those who can renounce marriage. But he never condemns those who cannot. I am against divorce. I am for marriage. God knows the heart. He's the only one who can ultimately be the judge. Next time, we'll consider what Paul has to say and deal with a few more questions. Thank you, and God bless.